0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network, so join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference.
1: Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. We're on the Compliance Podcast Network. We are so happy to be back for our summer season, and we have a bunch of great episodes coming up, including today. I'm speaking with Jenna Waters, who is cybersecurity consultant at True Digital Security. A lot of people, myself included, say that we fell into compliance through our work or our jobs. Jenna also said she stumbled into compliance, but her work and her path are so different. She started in the Navy, then she was in college, And now she has a role today at TRUE and dealing with um, all of these very difficult cybersecurity and technical issues that for people like me can be kind of intimidating. So with that, let's get started. And Jenna, thank you so much for being here. And let's start with you telling everybody about yourself and your journey where you ended up stumbling into compliance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, yes, I definitely just felt, I feel like I just stumbled into cybersecurity and compliance, but you know, when I was younger and I graduated high school, I was one of the many of my generation um, who was like, I don't know what I wanna do with my life. I just wanna do something meaningful. <laughs> I feel like that's sort of the um, mantra of millennials is I don't know what I wanna do, but I want it to be meaningful. yeah so um I just you know my sister at the time was um she was serving in the army and she convinced me to enlist in the military as sort of a way to kind of find my path and also you know learn discipline and learn you know structure and to kind of get some work under my belt and you know I kind of batted around with that idea for a summer and decided, you know what, she's right. I don't know what I want to do. I don't want to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars going to college, switching majors, which I was saying my friends already start to do. So I enlisted in the Navy. Um, when I enlisted, I passed a series of exams um, and I became a linguistic and intelligence analyst. Um, and I served two years in California and then four years at the... Um, uh, at the NSA <laughs> mm-hmm. and the, uh, uh, in Hawaii. And it was at the, um, Naval Intelligence Operations Command. We always called it NIOC. So for me, I have to think really hard about what the actual name was. Um, <laughs> uh, the military is rife with uh, like acronyms. So.
1: Yeah. Same with compliance, same with everything. Anytime yes. you a new organization, it's like a whole new alphabet.
0: It is. It really is. And every organization is so different. They want, they always wanted to find their own thing, it seems like. But I chose the I'm often asked why I chose the Navy. And I joke that it was, you know, they offered me the biggest enlistment bonus. But in reality, <laughs> it was actually because they just seemed to have, especially in the United States, they had the longest standing traditions of all the military branches. And I appreciated that. So that that was one of the reasons I chose to go with them. As for the work I did with the, with the Navy, it's a lot, most of it, all of it is classified. So, but what I can tell you is I did, you know, operate and work with very advanced computer information systems. Um, I did this in conjunction with um, classified materials for a variety of missions and military operations. Um, it sometimes did require knowledge of a foreign language um, and communications data, as well as cryptology uh, and some pretty robust computer skills. Um, I served as a team leader. I worked with, um, all members from every branch of the armed services. So army Marines, a lot of air force <laughs> mm-hmm. and even a co- I even worked with the coast guard guy, which was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we always forget about them, but there, there. He was there a uh, really nice guy. I spent a lot of my time, you know, doing a lot of collection and reporting of really highly technical classified information and essentially presenting strategic and tactical reports um, both indirectly and directly to fleet commanders as well as National Intelligence Agency leadership um, and sometimes even above them.
1: Let me ask a question about that. And before we go on to what you did afterwards, because you just talked about a lot of things, first of all, you can't talk about for, for you know <laughs> yeah. a reasons, but also you did mention how you had a team reporting to you. And you know, you were young. I mean, you were out of school, out of high school a few years, and you were a woman. So I thought maybe, you know, you could talk a little bit about what you were learning really early on in your career about manning managing a team and what challenges, if any, from being a woman and a woman in the military and somebody who's in her early 20s to being a leader.
0: Yeah. So I was promoted to a team lead. uh, I think I was 22, which is really young to be the manager of a team. And it was um, at any given point, it would differ between seven to 14 people. Um, So, you know, I would say the most valuable lessons I learned was obviously there's the discipline, the military instills in you. I still fold my clothes the same way. Um, But I also learned flexibility. I learned the, you know, I learned how to, make a plan, not just execute the plan, but then being able to adapt that plan as things within the environment or the operation change. And not just the operation itself, but also adapt my people to it. So that means sometimes meant shifting who was doing what duty. Sometimes that meant, you know, having to kind of help my team members adjust in terms of when things suddenly changed, and keeping them on task, and managing their stress as much as managing my own stress. Um, You know, I learned early on, and as a woman, I find this so invaluable, because I feel like, at least in terms of my generation, that we, we weren't necessarily always taught to be leaders. And I learned that being a leader, you know, it, whether it's of one part, like you're leading and mentoring one individual or 20, it's not about being in control. It's not about being the big boss. You know, it's, it's about being accountable for your actions, for your team's actions, for when things go right. And for when things go wrong, you know, you're there to be a guide and a mentor and yes, to manage your team, but in a way that enables those team members to do their job and perform to the best of their abilities you know one thing i learned was you know sometimes that means sacrifice as is a part of leadership and i was 22 23 i wanted to take all the leave the military wanted to give me <laughs> <laughs> but you know once i found myself responsible for team members who were older than me or had and had families and children and you know we were all stuck on in hawaii on an island you know, thousands, most of us, thousands of miles away from our families, you know, it, I ended up not taking a lot of my leave time until the end of my tenure, um, so that my team members could take more time to spend with their families to go on holiday or, you know, to see their, you know, friends at Christmas time. I learned that being a leader means being willing to make those tough decisions and, being willing to sacrifice that time sometimes. And that's hard, it's really hard to learn at such a young age. And you know I also r- learned how difficult it can be when those tough decisions sometimes translate into disciplinary actions for your team member or standing in front of your superiors and taking responsibility for if and when things didn't go as planned. Um, I think being the leader of any team, especially at a young age and especially as a woman, you know, it's very important and it should absolutely be encouraged because you not only learn lessons about, you know, how to be in charge of a team or a project, but about yourself and about how you want to be and how you want to lead others in the future.
1: It's a lot. And that's a lot to be doing. I mean, I'm thinking of myself at 22 in college Um, Didn't pick one major, but I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking about leadership. I was thinking about jobs or other things. And I mean, I do remember when I first got out of school, you know, looking young, feeling young and when first dealing with people, how, how do you manage all that? But it's at a whole different level when you're dealing with national security issues and the military and seven to 14 people. So, yeah. So with that, then you, after you were, you finished and you returned back home and you went to the University of Tulsa, uh, first of all, how did you know you wanted to go there? Um, and then, you know, how did you decide what you wanted to do and focus? Um, did you want to stay in the same areas as you were in the Navy or, you know, move to something different?
0: Um, so I've always wanted to go to the University of Tulsa. And I think you and I talked about this before, but um, the reason I wanted to go is the most Fantastical, essentially childish region. Uh, we went on like a college tour in middle school when I was in middle school and we got to see their library. Well, the University of Tulsa, if you ever get a chance to visit, is a spectacularly beautiful campus. A lot of like neo Gothic architecture uh, mixed in with some art deco, which is very gorgeous. Um, so we go to this library and I was obviously a huge fan of Disney. <laughs> huge fan of beauty and the beast and this library changed everything for me i knew as soon as i walked into it as soon as i just saw the like bricks and the books and stacks of them like as high as you could see that that was the university i wanted to go to and um like it, it wasn't like the most logical <laughs> way to pick a college but I had no other college in mind. Um, I did apply to other schools when I was older, but I was dead set on going there. It just happened to be that the University of Tulsa is one of the leaders in cybersecurity and computer science education in the United States. They do a lot of work with a lot of federal agencies as well as you know, a lot of critical infrastructure and training people in engineering and computer science and cybersecurity in those arenas. So that just sort of it was one of those things where I just sort of stumbled into the right area at the right time. And, you know, at first I was like, maybe I want to be a developer. Maybe I want to do this, but cybersecurity compliance, you know, it all just fit with what I'd already been doing and what I was already passionate about doing, which is helping people. Um, I think we're in a unique position where these skills are genuinely valuable from a business perspective, but are also genuinely valuable in terms of serving, continuing that service that I had started um, just maybe in the private sector rather than the public.
1: Yeah. And you just mentioned this, and this is one of the things that I'm super excited to talk to you about is the relationship of cybersecurity with traditional compliance programs. And I wanted to start by talking about how do you define compliance and then what would, you know, we have people who listen who are in so many different parts of uh, compliance, you know, ethics, ethics, compliance, decision-making. What, you know, what do you think to keep in mind, both as lay people and generally as, you know, stewards of compliance programs to keep in mind from a larger scope?
0: I think compliance in terms of a definition is a lot of times given a bad rap. It's often it's just checking boxes, (laughs) but it shouldn't be just checking boxes, nor should it be a hindrance to cybersecurity operations or business functions. Rather, you know, compliance with cybersecurity requirements, um, it reduces the risk of data breaches and of cybersecurity hacks. And it also can reduce the associated response and recovery costs that go along with that. Including those costs that are not really quantifiable, but um, that includes things like dam- reputational damage, operational interruption, trickle, and the trickle down of negative consequences to the public at large. Um, compliance is a means of sort of health checking your cybersecurity operations and how they're, well they're functioning. You know, we're seeing how important that is with the Colonial Pipeline hack, as well as the hack on the meat factories. Because again, it's no longer just a business issue when a business is hacked. It's it's starting to hit regular people. You know, everyday citizens are starting to feel the effects and bear the burden of cyber attacks. So it can no longer just be described as a quote, private sector issue um, because it's now really leached itself into the public sphere more tangibly. And I think that's something, you know, compliance um, and cybersecurity professionals have been warning about for decades. It's just now we're really seeing it start to come to fruition and, and the damage it can wreak. So I think compliance is an incredibly important part of any organizational like cybersecurity function because it's again, it's that quote health check. For your fun, for your operations and
1: how do you you know sort of start when you're trying to get your traditional compliance program to work with you know cybersecurity firm uh, work excuse me um, you know concerns how do you start that is it risk assessments and how, how kind of how do you start that process if you were talking to, you know, someone who is really realizing sort of the larger scope of this and building it into their business.
0: So with a lot of the compliance we see today, a risk assessment is typically a part of it, and it's a great way to begin. It can definitely help set that baseline of what your organization's functions are now. So I look at risk assessments as, what are you doing now and how well are they working and where can you improve in the future? And you know, cybersecurity, to me, a risk assessment should be a critical part of every organization's sort of annual like to-do list. They're really invaluable um, at determining the probability of an attack, you know, whether it'll succeed or fail based on the technologies of vulnerabilities that have been that have been identified and the potential impact of a cyber attack will have on a business, including, but certainly not limited to those things we discussed before, which is reputation, finances, and overall operations. You know, as technology changes and threats that technology evolve, you know, companies should really be undergoing those risk assessments every year. And those risk assessments should be and serve as a guide and serve as sort of a pre, you know, compliance audit, you know, Goal to fix before your compliance comes down. Um, And compliance can be identified in terms of industry. So you could have PCI, you could have HIPAA, going back to those acronyms, (laughs) Um, you know, or you could have more robust ones in terms of like NERC-SIP with um, the electrical grid or pipelines. So compliance can be industry, it can be government, it can be regulatory. And I think what we need to be doing is you should be doing a risk assessment to compare to prepare for a compliance audit. Your risk assessment should sort of be like eating right and checking, you know, checking your weight every month or so and exercising and making sure that you know you can still like touch your toes um, at the end of the day. And that's just an example. But then your <laughs> compliance, your compliance audit is your checkup with your doctor. That that's your yeah, you know, that should be your going in and getting a physical. So the risk assessment should always be done and should always be done to help prepare you for an audit so that you know what you need to do between now and the audit.
1: And then how, you know, one of the challenges, I mean, we all we all get both in terms of resources and buy-in, you know, how, how do you help or encourage leadership buy-in um, and, you know, ensuring that you're going to be able to to, to make your best case to leadership and to, to get them to buy in?
0: Leadership buy-in is absolutely essential and it needs, it needs to come into play now. (laughs) I think we're starting to see it more and more with organizations, um, who will often include cybersecurity or some sort of cyber, um, you know, improvement as their overall like five-year goals or as like a core value of their organization. Um, but I would like to see it go beyond those platitudes and into like actual action and investment because it's up to, a chief, ex- to chief executives and to board members who have those large stakes in the success of an organization to, to recognize that IT and computer systems are not just a support function of the business anymore. They're not. They are the backbone of your business. No modern organization can truly succeed and grow without a robust IT system. And those systems have to be protected, especially if you work in an industry that is serving the general public, like critical infrastructure, you know. Um, and an organization can only change its priorities to include cybersecurity and compliance with best practices and regulations if leadership pulls the organization in that direction and is willing to actually invest appropriately. Um, And when I say invest, I don't mean just throwing money at it and buying the next hot tool that, you know, touts AI technology to do it for you. I mean, actually take those risk assessments and those compliance audits and determining, you know, in conjunction with, you know your experts, your middle management where that money can best be placed where you can get the greatest bang for your buck essentially in that investment because you know when you invest appropriately in cybersecurity, you may never see the actual you'll never necessarily see a profit from it rather what you're going to see is a lack of loss if you've done cybersecurity appropriately as an investor in your organization as a chief executive what you will see is a decrease (laughs) in cyber attack successes. You'll see, you aren't going to see any kind of like great monetary output as a result. And I think that's where it becomes hard to get leadership buy-in because they want a return on investment. But the return on investment for cybersecurity is simply the prevention of loss. And that's hard to quantify, but I think once you can do that,
1: well, and and I think that's
0: a parallel to
1: what all mm-hmm. ethics and compliance people are are doing is that if things aren't going wrong, that means that you know you're you're, you're successful. But the, the challenge is when that goes on for a long time, people think you know, do we need to be doing everything we're doing? Uh, you know, is this it you know, makes sense? But that actually brings me to a topic that when we talked before, one of the. Two couple things that I want to make sure we, we talked about here, which is the diff- difference right now, you're talking about cybersecurity here, which is everything, even what the leaderships buying and then our cyber um, reactivity. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea that by cybersecurity, I think I've got this, is that that's, you know, being proactive. And then some of the cyber reactivity is when you are forced to do many incident responses. How, you know, can you talk a little bit about that as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I like to use our healthcare system as a metaphor for this, for the difference between cybersecurity and cyber reactivity. Um, in the United States, um, we do not have what can truly be defined as healthcare. And I think many people kind of agree to that. Um, we have sick care. Uh, sort of that means the way that system is structured is you only receive or seek medical attention when you're sick, or occasionally in my you know, circumstances worried about being sick. <laughs> um, I'm a bit of a germaphobe, which is fine. Um, but preventative care in our system te- tends to take a backseat, um, you know, checkups, physicals, and then your diet and your exercise and taking vitamins and even things like flossing our teeth are not the focus um, because those don't really make money. You know, x-rays mm-hmm. make money. <laughs> if Expensive treatments to make money. Cybersecurity and the cybersecurity industry and the compliance industry is, is similar. Um, it's changing, but it's still similar. You know, cyber, we don't have cybersecurity in this country. Rather, the industry is based around this idea of cyber reactivity. Um, you know, there's more profit to be made by organizations who sell security monitoring and detection tools by cyber reactivity rather than preventing attacks in the first place. So, you know, people you'll always see with something like a colonial pipeline hack or with the meat factories or with the um, uh, Experian hack, um, all of a sudden the the investment and tools and technology will like spike and people start implementing things left and right without actually... Going through the motions of determining if it's right for their organization and if this tool actually functions as well as it says it will. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've seen this and experienced it in the private sector and teams I've worked with this too. So it's, which is really kind of frightening sometimes. Um, but it's it's often these same stakeholders and organizations who, you know, will tell you, we need better security. Look at my fancy multi-thousand-dollar tool that uses AI and Mm data-driven, holistic analysis. And those words mean nothing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, but it's also the same people who say that compliance isn't useful because it's just ticking boxes. Yeah. Yeah, So, yeah. So it's going back to our healthcare metaphor. A compliance should be like an annual or even if you're really just like excited about it, bi-annual medical physical for your organization. You go to a trusted trained credentialed third party um, who objectively obsesses the overall health of your IT, its operations, and in the security controls that are in place to protect it. And not just technology, but also looks into your processes, your procedures, your people, your training, and uh, provides that assessment. And you know, I certainly don't go to my, not, I certainly don't perform my own blood work. I go to a trusted doctor <laughs> to do that. <laughs> I don't trust myself to do that. So an organization shouldn't really be doing this themselves. They shouldn't be self-assessing if, you know, if they have a very high risk profile. And to me, trusting an organization to audit itself is akin to trusting myself to stick a needle in my arm um, and to see if I have diabetes or cancer. It's, It's, you know, and I see a lot of times, you know, I, love internal audit teams, I really do, I work with a lot of them, and they're so passionate about what they do, but even at times, they're hampered by, you know, leadership, or the quote overall goals of the organization to do their jobs, so I think sometimes bringing in that third party really helps them, get the yeah. message across to leadership because all of a sudden you have a third party who you've paid money to going, no, your audit team is right. You need to fix this, you know? Yeah. And I really think audits, you know, if you perform an audit every year, whether you're performing it on PCI, which is, you know, payment card industry, or you're doing a HIPAA audit or you're doing, you know, um, any kind of audit really, If you're going to do that, that's part of your due diligence every year. And if you're not doing your due diligence every year to ensure the cybersecurity of your organization meets compliance and best practices, then you're being negligent, you know? And yeah, 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 it's your data, it's your business, it's your employees and your customers, therefore it's your responsibility to ensure that you are protecting all of that.
1: And one of the things that you talked about about that too is, I mean, and I also, I was going to say one other point too, is that it, it's much better to figure this all out before you're in the middle of your reactivity crisis. Um, yes. You have no choice. It's nice to have planned who you want to work with and everything else. Cause even from a practical standpoint, the number of companies that will just reach out to you the day after they think something bad happened um, they're like, oh, look, you know, you'd, so, so the other thing is if you want to be able to choose your, you know, the, the best providers or, you know, figure out who to hire and things like that, it's a lot better to be doing that, not in the middle of the crisis. Um, but you did say to follow along with that one thing, another, another thing was that one, $1 in data security can be $10 saved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just thought that was such a, an interesting statistic. And I thought maybe you had like an example or two that would you know, kind of be a practical one for that.
0: Um again it's hard to come up with an example because if you haven't if you haven't had a hack, you haven't lost money. <laughs> Right. Right. But no,
1: I realized that part of it as soon as I said, <laughs> that. but I also thought about the fact that, you know, not necessarily like this company avoided it, but some of the, you know, things you've talked about a couple of times, you know, can only line and other things, you know, those were huge breaches that mm-hmm. with some other things would have been able to, you know, probably without gaps earlier, you can't say for sure, but may have been less likely to occur.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, a good example would probably be, um, and I'm probably getting the name wrong just cause I always mix it up with Expedia, the travel company. So mm-hmm. if I say that, I apologize, but the Experian hack.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, they didn't lose money. Like money isn't what they lost necessarily. What they lost was trust. Yeah. What they lost was their reputation. And then to make matters worse, you had the CEO go in front of Congress and tell them, well, it was the engineer's fault. Which automatically enrages everybody. Because, like I said before, I think many people look at leadership, and if leadership cannot take responsibility for what has happened, then you know it, it it's kind of appalling. <laughs> And and it it tends to rub everyone's craw a little, little raw. Mm -hmm. And um, I totally just regionalized myself with that. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously from the South. Um, (laughs) But um, that is an example of it. How much business did they lose all of a sudden? Because people were like, oh, you just lost all of my personal data. And what I get from it is $10 in a, you know, big, you know, class action lawsuit and some free monitoring from you, <laughs> from you. you couldn't even do your job, I'm going to go to TransUnion Bye. so it, it's that loss of business, they had a huge loss in stocks and revenue, right after that, and then it dumped again when the CEO was like, it was the engineer's fault, not my fault. So that's an example of a hack that actually didn't cost them financial money until it became public. And then it translated into dollars and cents in terms of their stocks, in terms of their revenue. And because what they did is they lost trust. They lost the trust of their customers of their investors. And, you know, it's taken years for them to build a backup. I think they were um, bought up by Intuit or something, but. Yeah.
1: Something like that.
0: It took years for them to recover from that. And I highly urge any organization, if you don't think your CEO should go in front of Congress, you might want to pick somebody else. <laughs> 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 just, just but throwing that out there because you did not help them
1: um yeah. and if your CEO cool. is going make sure they're very very well prepped I was sure this is a lesson I mean for anyone on any level you certainly don't mm-hmm. go to Congress but I mean I, I don't forget when people come into me and you know on, on any level I mean there are times where you have to say this went wrong and this is how yeah. we're going to fix it but you don't go out into the rest of the world and say it was him it was her it wasn't mm-hmm. me You know, that's part of being a decent leader. You know, a lot of times you fall on the sword and at the other hand, you make sure that the, on the flip side, that the engineers get credit when things go right. That's, you know, that's, I think that's leadership. That's a little bit different.
0: No, it it is, but I think that's a good example of how you can, they could have invested in actually providing their security teams with the adequate, you know, skills, personnel, Um, And yes, tools and technology to prevent that from happening or to mitigate, you know, the consequences. So instead of losing, what, millions of records, maybe they would have only lost a couple hundred or even if they lost millions, it's all encrypted anyway. So they didn't have it. Yeah. Like that was one thing is like, why wasn't this data encrypted? Like, (laughs) even if they got access to it, they shouldn't have been able to read it.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, it it sounds so obvious when you think about it. And Mm -hmm. at a certain point in time, you know, people, I think, get so involved in what they do day to day, they either minimize risk or see it differently. It's why it's why, again, back to your point, sometimes you need someone who's not in the weeds every day to kind of help you refocus. Um, So is there any other little bit of advice you'd like to share um, with the uh, with the the, the, the listeners? The, you know, most of whom are ethics and compliance professionals that aren't as specialized or technical. But any any other passing bit you'd want to share?
0: I just really want to stress that I think moving forward, and most of my colleagues and people in compliance and who work on the more technical side of cybersecurity, you know, we really see it. it it's critical. It, it's a critical sector and a criti- like very important for ensuring the robust, sustainable, you know, economic and social welfare of the United States and her people, and really any country. And I believe businesses, regardless of size, but especially public policy leaders at this stage, need to be aware of cybersecurity risks. In order to prepare and prevent attacks from occurring, and compliance is a big part of that, and it needs to be a bigger part of that. Again, it needs to be a health check, especially for critical infrastructure, especially for you know, organiz- like organizations that do our food and meat processing. It things that we take for granted they need to be able to focus on the cybersecurity of the organization as well as what makes them profitable because at this point a cybersecurity attack on a business could cripple its ability to continue to operate you know and if this is an organization like a hospital you know then that outcome it can be dire for the public it can have far reaching consequences beyond just loss of profit or the business continuing it it goes well beyond that into the public sphere so I really think that we need as a country to say that this is sort of our new frontier and we have to make sure it's not really new anymore it's like 20 years old (laughs) but we have to really start wondering how do how do we actually protect ourselves Mm-hmm. and compliance is a part of that.
1: Yeah, and, and for those of us, those that are in other countries, same thing, we're all yeah. protecting it. But with that, I do have a very global question to end this great discussion. And thank you so much for being here. Um, one question I do have for you is, What when, when we first spoke, um, Jenna has some really cool book covers for the Harry Potter series. So <laughs> Harry Potter, listen, that's about as global as you get. I mean, you know, they're, they're flying everywhere, literally. So- I wanted to ask you um, which um, and, we, and I like Harry Potter a lot too. So um, which house would you be in and what character? I, I really wanted it to be, and I always envisioned myself as a Hermione, and then I was in Hufflepuff, which I've come to terms with, but I did try while doing my research to find some you know famous Hufflepuffs that I could, you know, relate to. And there weren't as many out there in, in in the literature. So I wanted to know what character, you know, which house you would be in and what character.
0: So I I can definitely tell you with a surety that I am in Slytherin house. (laughs) That was, this was
1: unexpected, but still unappreciated in many ways.
0: It is. Um, But yeah, so every time I take the uh, Potter morgues tests or even just like a quiz online for fun, I almost always inevitably get Slytherin um as for what character i'd be she's not really featured very in the actual books uh she's sort of just mentioned in respect um but her uh andromeda Tonks. um, oh she was a a
1: hufflepuff fun fact i looked that
0: up was she a hufflepuff because i thought she was a slytherin and she married a hufflepuff well maybe that's
1: what happened but in any event i love Tonks.
0: Yeah, well, Tonks was a Hufflepuff. Her mom Andromeda was a Slytherin. Oh, yeah, I got yeah. it. Back. My bad. So, so, and she so Andromeda was Narcissa Malfoy's eldest sister, and she basically <laughs> turned her back on her family for their like pure-blooded like, you know, uh, radicalism. And I, I would hope that I would be like that. That kind of Slytherin that goes, "That's gross. I'm going over here." <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't really know that
1: I might potentially end up being your child in this interview. So yes, things that in the great Women of Compliance podcast I always can take an interesting direction. But I really, really appreciate you joining me and taking the time to talk about this. And thank you so much, Jenna, for being here. And on behalf of Mary, the podcast and the compliance podcast
0: network, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being on.